I'm Sarah McDonald. I am one of the hosts of the Classic Mistake podcast. This is my first episode uh, going solo, and I'm really excited to have two of my very dear friends, Nick Sullivan from the University of Lethbridge and Charles Stolte from King's University in Edmonton. Nick is a trombone player, and Charles is a saxophone player. And if you want to learn more about them, we will have a link to their bios uh, in, in the, the uh, description of the episode. My colleague Joachim Zeger and I were doing a tour of Poland some years ago and we were going to play that evening's concert and it was this beautiful hall, great anticipation, all kinds of people. And just as we are about to begin the first piece, someone's cell phone goes off. And it's, it was a long time ago, so it was a, a tune, but it was really an awful tune because those phones were low technology (laughs) and so then there was this gap that kind of vacuum gap where everyone and then what I did was I played it back (laughs) and then Joachim joined and he harmonized it (laughs) we improvised a short piece based on the cell phone ring at the moment and then I said please turn off your cell phone (laughs) even though that was fun uh, my colleague Bill Street and I, we were in uh, some American state, I think it was Texas, and we were playing at a conference, and the piece was written for two saxophones and cell phones. The composer had created all these different cell phone ringtones, and then we had audience members placed with their phones, and it was all time so that these, these cell phones would go off. Uh, but Bill's best friend was in the audience, and so we were playing along, and he's really enjoying it, and the cell phone goes off. And then we see him turn around and <laughs> glare at the person behind. That was the first one. And as we went through the piece, and there's this whole cacophony, and he was just absolutely freaking out. And then he was so angry. And at the end of the, uh, of the performance, he came back, and Bill and I said nothing. And he said, well, what did you think of the piece? Well, I mean, I really like the saxophone part, but what was up with all those cell phones going on? (laughs) (laughs) And we told him, um, and then he was quite sheepish. (laughs) That was beautiful, though. (laughs) Especially the first time he turned around and went, honestly! (laughs) I mean, he didn't say that. It's it's such a great way to turn that around, though, right? Because I don't think there's any... Oh gosh, I'm trying to think of a rehearsal that I've gone through in the last X number of months where somebody's cell phone hasn't gone off. There's always somebody that forgets to turn their always, ringer off and it just always. kills me. And I love your first story there where, where you talk about just turning it around and that's such a... Um, it's, 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 it's far more polite than the, the, the orchestral conductor yelling at people or something like that. Yeah. Right? It's, just, it's such a nice way of saying, yeah, that, that was not you shouldn't do that. But we're okay with it. Just turn it off now, please. I like that, but I just I can't think of a rehearsal in the last. Like uh, I'm it's, so it's a switch. You can turn it so off. anal. My yeah. my ringer's never on, even now, even yeah. right now, just in case you know. Yeah, I I honestly I don't think I haven't had a ringer on my phone for probably the better part of a decade. Like there's a switch literally on there to turn it off. I don't like what. <laughs> what kind of person uses a ringer nowadays? Is are you afraid? Like, are you afraid, Charles, if you were in a like a big like orchestra rehearsal of your phone going? Oh, off? I, I always keep my phone off. Always off. Me. Yeah, always off. But there's always someone in the audience yeah. that's like. Yeah, but they're not musicians. Yeah, they're not Even constantly so, working in a situation where mm-hmm. sound is is the medium. I guess so I had, you know in I was in Lethbridge once, and I was playing the Carmen Fantasy at that mm. Brian Black. You know yeah. that like. Um, Valentine, whatever thing yep. at the library. 
and my sister was in the audience, and some guy sitting in front of her actually answered his phone. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he was like, oh, guys, sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm like, at this, at this flute thing. <laughs> right there. I, um, I remember I had a thing for, I always left it on silent, but I, I had a thing uh, with just using the vibration function mm. on the phone. Because I was like, okay, if I need to get a call, it'll, it'll vibrate. Um, and at this time, um, like my father was was ill, so I kind of always had my phone attached to my hip anyways, just to see what was going on. And I was in Vancouver at the time, as it was too. Um, and so I always had this this vibrate function on. And I don't know, it probably was right in the middle. We were doing with the UBC Orchestra Mall or two, and you know, full brass all over the place. And I've got my phone on my stand and call comes in and starts vibrating. And the number of people that turn around and look say, what's wrong with your stand? I mean, it's, it's like really going like, oh God. <laughs> you know, you learn at that point. Yeah, even even the oh, vibration not is, okay. is not Vibrate's okay not either. okay. Yeah. It's like those those moments in this, you know, in the symphony when you're playing and it's so quiet, you can hear the bows going across the yeah. strings and then, and, mm. and that's, I've been in a Mahler symphony before, <laughs> yeah. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> and you heard someone's little ding in yeah. that moment. And you're like, oh my gosh. Oh my God, someone's yeah. phone is on, who is that? Instrument malfunctions. Oh Lord. Uh, I feel like this is a brass thing. Like it your is. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, it's always funny. It's not funny at the time. Um, and it's always on a concert, isn't it? Whenever a malfunction happens, it's never like, oh, yeah, I was just practicing and fine, this happened. No, it's always like right in the middle of something really important. So I, I, don't, I don't even remember the piece. We were doing something with the Leopard Symphony and playing along. And I'm sure I was ready to go to play something lovely and loud. And, uh, of course, you're counting 400 measures of rest as a trombonist, so hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And, uh, of course, you're getting ready, and I'm emptying my, emptying my spit valve, and snap, the whole soldering of the, the entire mechanism was, came right off in the middle of a concert. So you're dropping bits of metal, and you're like, well, what the heck do I do? And most, like, high school and junior high kids, when that happens, yeah, you're like, well, we'll just, we'll just tape it up. But you're on stage, and you're in a touch, so like, what do you do, right? And you can't reach over to the next trombonist and steal their slide like a, like a concert master would do, right? Because uh, you'd take a, your bow snaps, or you'd take the next person's bow, or a string goes, you'd, you're like, they can do that. Now I can't take the slide from the person next to me. So you're just sitting there like, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, you won't have a route to this chord. Does it, I apologize. So the trombone just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's just leaking air at the bottom, yeah. so it just sounds like a dying a cow. at the bottom. Yeah, it just doesn't work. All the air is going just, there. Yeah, so you basically stop before the, any of this, this, the, the sound vibration has gone anywhere near the valve. It just sounds awful. Did you try using your foot I thought to close the... <laughs> Hold at the bottom. Well, I'm thinking, okay, and I'm a bass trombone, so I'm thinking, okay, how much of this can I do with my valves while I've got my hand plugging the hole at the yeah. bottom of my slide? You but, I mean, it's a four-foot slide. Is my arm long enough to reach? <laughs> it's just, yeah, thankfully, uh, I don't I don't even, I'm pretty sure it was somewhere in the middle of the first movement and then tacit for a bit, so you run off stage and you grab the masking tape and... I, I don't even know it was Do you keep tape. masking tape in your case? No, like we, I was uh, at that point. I'm sure I was running around trying to find somebody in an office. It's like, hey, tape, duct tape, masking tape, any tape. <laughs> uh, I will take paper towel and an elastic. But then if you can't enter your spit valve. <laughs> and but that's the thing. He's so that you get that like. And then you have to take the slide completely off and just drain it upside down. So now you're you're doing plumbing on stage. Yeah, it's it's, yeah. But that's 
there's nothing like the sound of that hunk of metal hitting a hardwood floor. <laughs> like just, just I don't even know how you react. I just just like <laughs> terror. There's just nothing you can do about it. So there's a running joke in the brass world is if you drop a mute in the concert, it's a case of beer. Oh really? Oh yeah, okay. yeah. So anytime it's like you look at well, I guess because he's covering the drinks tonight. Um, and in in my studio in my in my teaching, we keep the joke going. But there was a, ye- a run of years where uh, our student performers, all, somebody in my trombone section, those, one of those kids was always dropping a mute. It, was, it just became like a cursed thing. And it would, of course, always happen in the most quiet of moments, right? You're shoving a mute in, all of a sudden there's this big metal clank. The best ones are when they're on like a riser and the mute falls, hits the riser, rolls down, hits the next riser, all the way down. Ah. And I mean, the low brass is the worst because I mean, like, you can get away with a trumpet mute smaller, so it's going to be like, okay, it's not as aggressive, but like a big hollow trombone mute. What the? What Yeah. I remember um, when I was in Vancouver, they were doing uh, the Britain War Requiem, and there's a brilliant mute section in there, and an unnamed uh, brass player <laughs> in the middle of whatever quiet section uh, mute fell in the middle of this Requiem. Uh, whatever section of it was, and you could see the glare from Bramble Toby from behind his head. You could probably it feel was, it. It was brutal. <laughs> like you can like, feel it. And it was like this Remembrance Day concert. It was so powerful, and yet, embarrassed as it is not even on the surface. Oh, you just want to like. Yeah, die. Yeah. Well, I think it was probably seven years ago at Music Camp Alberta where I teach mm-hmm. each summer, my friend Mark DeYoung, who's a saxophonist too, but a jazz saxophonist, he spent two weeks of camp writing a piece for all of the faculty called Neil's Got the Funk. <laughs> and it starts with the baritone sax solo in typical funk fashion. So we did the dress rehearsal and I sounded like a god. <laughs> I was so impressed with myself, try. and I thought, I am, this is going to just slay. They're going to love it. So it was about 20 seconds before the piece was to start, and I was walking, and I just lightly brushed the saxophone against a pillar. Oh, no. I didn't think about it, because it was so light, I hardly noticed it. <laughs> oh, no. So... so I'm supposed to come out on stage by myself with this berry sax and lay down a really heavy funk line. So I come out and with this great image of myself as a god, (laughs) I take the saxophone and I start to riff. But all that comes out is... What what can I do? I couldn't do anything, so I had to kind of try to play the rhythm, and I was wrestling with the saxophone to get any kind of a pitch to come out. And instead of being awesome, it was the most comical beginning to anything, and at the same time, I was feeling so bad for Mark because this was all so beautifully prepped to send off camp director Neil Corlett, and he's the and and what I discovered had happened was that the very top key of the saxophone oh, had got banged oh. and it was open. Oh. So that means none, <laughs> none of the other notes below it 
could possibly be made. <laughs> and that was the whole performance. Was it easily fixable? Like, could you do Yeah. Well, after I knew what was going on, I just bent that thing over and it worked. <laughs> but I didn't know what was going on on stage. I was looking up and down trying to figure out what was missing. Oh, my God. And I didn't see it. And it had shifted, you know, an eighth of an inch. So that half of the tone hole or a quarter of the tone hole was exposed and all the sound only could come out there. It couldn't come out anywhere else. My favorite, though, is the, the looking at the horn thing, right? Because like, something's wrong, and you're like, what's wrong with this thing? And you're staring at it. Oh, like Zoot on the Muppets. All yes. The mm. This is the instrument. Yeah, it's yeah. the instrument. Yeah, I, I Oh, because every student always does that when they can't play. So yeah. I immediately like, oh, no. Honey, it's not the horn. But. <laughs> <laughs> Operator issue, not mechanical issue. Yeah, we always look at the... I, I get a kick out of that. Yeah, looking at the horn. I, uh, I made a, a huge error in, in my career, it turned out. Um, I was at a conference in Chicago, and I was playing a piece with pipe organ. And it was way up in the loft of this church, and it was a huge organ that made a lot of wind. So when we rehearsed, it was great, but I was concerned about my pages falling. And so after the rehearsal was done, and be shortly before it was time to perform, I thought, I'm going to tape my pages so they don't fall. So I did that. And I got to the first end of the first page of the piece and realized I would not be able to make another page turn until the end of the piece. Oh, and so I would have to play as far as I could, take a break, and flip the page over, and then try to pick it up. <laughs> so, oh my god. Now, why this was so damaging was, unknown to me, this performance was a competition with another uh, well-placed American saxophonist for the best available job, entry job, in America. I didn't know that. Of course, it wouldn't help me at all to tell how me did that. You, how did you not know? Well, I didn't know because uh, the the profs were there. Uh, everybody was there. And it was this guy who turned out to be so much better than me anyway. <laughs> oh, no. So he would have got the job regardless. But it was like, and then after it was done, I you know, you have to bow and smile and everything. And I go down and I go to my prof, Hemke, and he leans over to me and he's 6'5", and he goes, what the hell was that? <laughs> and then I found out that this was actually a really important thing. So I think, um, I think it was a good message to me about that job. Here, I was not mature enough really to ensure that things were going to go right. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't deserve that job. Whereas the other guy was definitely mature enough. So <laughs> in the long run. But that terrible feeling at the end of the first page. Not that this was one thing but it would be all the way through and can't fix anything and, and like why just because your tape pages were taped? yeah because i had to slide them because it wasn't written out according to to page turns it was written out to fit the page oh, and so one page halfway through i'd say slide so i'd slide that over keep paying that page but you tape them all together and i tape them all yeah. together oh. so some of them i had to go to the end of each page take a break uh, well i, I oh, stopped playing God. And the organ keeps going, thank God, and then try to find my way back in, and that had to be, I mean, except between movements. I could start right. each movement really well. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, two other weather-related ones, right? So, like, heat tuning is just brutal, right? Uh, at least the instrument works well, but the, the pitch is just, it's no good. 
And of course, when it's hot out, you're playing outside, and the sun's beating on you. You get that little bit of that layer of, of sweat on on your and it's on your embouchure, so you're sliding around the mouthpiece, and so it kind of feels more gross than anything else, and it's out of tune. Uh, but winter playing, because of course there's there's this lovely thing that exists called uh, called tuba Christmas. Mm. And what is and what is what tuba? Is tuba? So, so tuba Christmas is where you gather every and any tuba player you could possibly find, and you get together and play Christmas carols. Uh, Outdoors? Been, uh, well, we'll get there. Okay. Um, it depends on your climate. <laughs> yeah, right? But uh, is this a thing? Like, you're saying thing. it like it's a, it's like a, it's an actual thing. North so this, American thing. It is. It's such a worldwide thing. Yeah, it's, it, Charles, tube, it's a small it? world. It, yeah. After all. It's, very, it's a big instrument, but a small world. <laughs> it's a small world. No, it's uh, Harvey Phillips, one of the, one of the great oh, yeah, two right. players. Um, this was started in his honor, and it's been, I think, this coming year is year 50 or 49. That's been happening, and there's like three in Canada. There's tons in the states. There's some in like Puerto Rico, and anyway, so these events. But when Leftbridge started hosting one, because we really wanted to do one, and they're great because you can the music is is equally accessible to like a junior high tuba player as much as as a, as a, a community player mm. or anybody in between. So it's just you get a great pile of people. Everybody decorates their instruments. You get like reindeer tubas and things like that. It's it's hilarious and it's fun. Um, but the first year the Lefters hosted it, we thought, well, we got this great pergola in our downtown park. It's beautiful. We can get all the tuba players in there. We'll be able to fit 50 people. It'll be great. But of course, in Lefters, you're thinking, yeah, okay, but is it going to be like minus 40? Or is it going to be like blowing wind? Or is it going to be like summer? You don't know. And then we you didn't, don't. we were like, whatever, we're going to do it outside. We're going to make this happen. And so we're, we're out there. And it ended up being like, I don't know, a foot worth of snow and minus 20-something with a little bit of a wind chill. So we're out there with propane heaters and everybody's wearing like three layers of clothing and we're all desperately trying to find plastic mouthpieces so that your face doesn't freeze to your mouth. Right? Yes. Uh, and I, I just remember we were, we were playing shifts. There was about, I think, only 20 people showed up because it was so cold. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous, right? 20 on the stage. On the stage. Up, yeah. yeah, 20 showed up. But we would play in shifts of like four people because everybody else would be holding their instruments over the propane heaters trying to thaw them. <laughs> and then somebody got the bright idea. So, well, I said, well, why don't we just put antifreeze in the valves so your valves don't freeze? Oh, oh my God, no. Which is just a bad idea, too. Right? <laughs> don't inhale. Um, but yeah, it was just hilarious. The whole instrument's freezing, people's faces freezing to things. You get like three or four notes out and then you're like, yeah, that kind of sounded like Jingle Bells. <laughs> and somebody started next, you get four. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh gosh. Especially tubas, they're too... Like I, I played trumpet in marching band in high school. Oh, cool. This wasn't cool at all, Charles. <laughs> it's I, quite a trip from flute to trumpet. It's, yeah. it, that is quite a trip. It's quite a trip to the marching band just for me. Mm. Like I'm oh. not uh, an athlete. And um, we went down to Fort McLeod to play in this the Fort parade. Fort McLeod parade. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We, I, we didn't know about plastic mouthpieces. That mouthpiece froze to my face, and those valves froze down, and I quit the marching band. Like, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> this is just not for me. I was doing uh, a camp festival in Poland some years ago, and it was a two-week camp. And the pianist and I had been working up a very substantial program of saxophone and piano and some saxophone solo works uh, to be performed on the to penultimate day. That day was 35 degrees Celsius with 80% humidity. Oh, gosh. oh, it's like you're wet. 
The performance took place on the fourth floor of an old brick building. (laughs) It would have been okay if the windows could have been open. (laughs) But across the street from the hall was a bar. And that day, they were having a rock music festival. (laughs) (laughs) So all the windows had been closed. You could still hear the rock music. And it was so hot, I could barely hold the mouthpiece, kept sliding around. Water would be pouring into, or sweat would be pouring into my eyes, so I had to blink to try to see the music. <laughs> I had a four liter jug of water that I had to keep <laughs> drinking through the whole thing because I was sweating so much. My, my nice shirt, which was green, light, a light green, was just dark green with sweat. <laughs> and it was, the, it was a really, really bad performance. <laughs> And at the end, this was the clincher. So I, we got through it, and there was some good music made, but there were also a lot of mistakes that just were brutal. And I had this very high-level student as part of the camp. And he comes up to me and in his Polish, Professor Stolti, very nice playing today, but I must ask you, do you not know these pieces? <laughs> <laughs> So, but there, you know, what did we, after that, we just went across the street to the bar, listened to rock music, and drank as much of that beer as we possibly could. That was so stressful. It was like, oh, God, i got to play another piece. Oh, what a stupid job to have. I know so many things, and it's not your fault. Oh, totally. It's such a stupid job. You can't help but laugh, though. I mean, like, it's just the situation is what it is. Oh, so, yeah, so it's frustrating, but it's also, what else are you going to do? <laughs> but that's, I mean, he was polite. He was so polite. Oh, yeah. It was, and it was very, he was very forthright. He wasn't needling me or anything. He was honestly confused. <laughs> <laughs> How come he can't play standard rap? I was in Terrace, Terrace, BC, doing their, their music festival a few years back uh, and, and before, uh, before COVID times. And so we were doing bands and all the instruments and, and all that sort of fun stuff. And it was a lovely festival and really well organized and such great attendance by, by schools and parents. It was just really, really well done. Um, and I'd flown in and you know, I just didn't feel right the first day. Something was kind of funky. Uh, and then I woke up the second day and it was like band day and I I don't know what was wrong with me but I you know I was sweating and I'm sure I had a fever and the throat was just closing up on me and I, I was losing my voice and I was like but I am only here for three days and these people flew me in I'm like I gotta you have to go to work yeah I gotta get to the church on time right like you gotta go work so off I am I'm doing these things and I'm powering through and 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 uh, day quilling it up and it's just getting worse and worse and worse and I look like death warmed over apparently and people are bringing me tea because I look like terrible I'm like no I'm fine I swear no 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 you're, you're clearly not this is pre-pandemic not. This is pre, right this is clear for everyone this is pre-pandemic when we didn't right know any, yeah when we didn't know any better and um, at the end of the second day, I was like, oh, I, I, okay, somebody's going to drive me to a, you know, a walk-in clinic or something. I had strep throat. Whoa. <laughs> I had no idea, right? And so the third day was just a write-off. They just locked me in and gave me antibiotics, and they flew me home a couple of days later. Uh, but, yeah, you just power through. But it, it, and, and the no amount of Dayquil was going to save my butt on that day. I did a dumb thing 
some years ago. I was working on reflooring my home. Mm. And right before a gig, I was working on reflooring my home. And I was cutting out uh, the, on the plywood this shape for the register using a jigsaw. And I was holding the board with my fingers underneath the board, right where the jigsaw went. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go along and, and there's this huge cut right across. God, you're lucky you didn't cut. Oh, no, totally, because I jerked it away like that. So there was this huge cut, and it was breathing profusely, and it was like, I don't know, about that deep. And I had a gig in an hour. So I couldn't go anywhere and get the thing stitched up. And so I thought, well, i got to play this thing. So I, you know, I put gauze on it, and then I wrapped it, and I put gauze on it, wrapped it up, so I had a finger (laughs) that was approximately the size of a microphone cover <laughs> on my finger and it hurt so much but just played the gig with this big thing on my finger. I mean nobody's looking at me right? Yeah. Uh, although I was in the front it was a big man gig and uh, then I went to the hospital uh, later. <laughs> oh, Your finger is still attached though which is. The, it is. Yeah. Oh but yeah. we do such dumb stuff like yeah. you're like oh I'm not going to the gig is like not an option, right? Yeah. Just like, of course I'm going to go. Yeah, but I think the, the dumber thing is, you know, to be too immature to realize that the gig's the most important thing and that you should take precautions. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Instead of thinking of it as just another thing to do and doing something dangerous before it that can affect it. Eating before you play. Oh. oh. Not. I always brush my teeth. Well, I always, always. Matter is, like, I, I'm religious about brushing my teeth before I play. But, like, those long days where you're like, okay, like, dress, dress, break, show, yeah, right. right? Like, well, I got to eat in the middle of all this. And you're, you're around with, like, piles of great friends, and you're having a great time on this gig, and you're sitting, so we're going to go out for a great meal together before we play the show, right? So you end up getting, wherever you go, oh, well, let's go have burgers, or let's have curry. pizza, or curry, gosh, <laughs> <laughs> something spicy or whatever. But it, it always is like, oh, this is so good. But if I eat any more than this, I will literally vomit into my horn. Mm-hmm. This is a bad plan, right? Um, and I remember one gig we were doing in Victoria, um, with, with Hugh, Hugh Fraser when he was, he was still there in Victoria and he had a group called um, Bonehenge, which was a riot. Mm. And so he would have us students at the time do like a student version of Bonehenge. And so we would go eat before a gig and he would have us, and we did, I don't know why we did, we did all you need Chinese at that point. Oh, well, that's a bad idea. Uh, yeah, and just the, the belching and the whoop. As people oh. are trying to play as loud as humanly possible, and then as a bass trombone player, you're really trying to honk out notes, and you're like, "Oh my God, here it comes!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, don't, yeah. When I was a really young university student, I got a, a big scholarship award, and so uh, there was a free meal at the faculty club mm. for all of the award honorees, and it was a buffet. <laughs> yep. And I was, you know, one of the star players. So, being young and very hungry, <laughs> I ate so much food. And then, right after that, I had to play. And it was a soft piece oh, gosh. <laughs> with a lot of low stuff, which I always found hard to do. So, it was really bad because I was so full of food, I could not breathe 
very well, nor could I uh, apply the pressure needed to the air, like you're saying, to make a good sound. So it was completely out of control for seven <laughs> minutes. Yeah. <laughs> the most charming point, though, was after it, sometime afterwards, and I felt like a knob. <laughs> uh, what a moron. That was terrible. They give you the money and you, let, you play like that. Uh, the guy who was the committee leader or whatever, he comes up to me. <laughs> he comes up to me, puts his hand on my shoulder, and he goes, haunting. <laughs> <laughs> haunting. That's great. <laughs> That could be interpreted in so many ways, but I, I think I know what he meant. I will be haunted by that performance for the rest of my life. I do yeah. remember a time, yeah, when I just first started dating my husband. Mm. And he took me to this like, Brazilian barbecue. Oh, was, yeah, with all the they meat. They just come around with all the meats. And it was stick of meat after stick of meat after stick of meat. And I really did eat too much. So I understand. Because after that, I went and played Mahler 6. Oh, Whoa, and wow. you were sweating a little. Oh, it was just uncomfortable. I, mean, I would never do that again. Yeah. That's not... Yeah. The type of digestion needed for a Brazilian barbecue is not compatible. No, you need a day before the show. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was like 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Right. I finished at the barbecue and yeah. off On to stage. work I went. Yeah. <laughs> I was adjudicating a voice recital at, at King's. Well, this is, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. Mm. He was quite a good singer. And he was really starting to cook. And he went for a high note. And he got the high note. And in the middle of the high note, this huge <laughs> belch rips out, <laughs> rips out of him and interrupts the high note. And I, I, just, I burst out laughing. That was the wrong thing to do. But it was so deliciously absurd. Oh, and what he did, this was so awesome. He just smiled and kept singing. What? Incredible self-awareness. <laughs> I wonder if he went to the Brazilian steakhouse. Before. <laughs> <laughs> it was my junior saxophone recital, and at the time I had very long hair. How long? Oh, down to my shoulders, all kinds of curly hair. Okay. And I thought to myself, two days, one day, no, it was the day before the recital, I should get my hair cut. Mm. So I got it cut off, kind of what amounted to a bob at ear length. Mm -hmm. And I went to the recital, and we're about to start the first piece, and the piano introduction goes along, and I take a huge breath, and I breathe in all of my oh, hair, God. because oh. I didn't realize it was exactly at the spot, and then I have to put the saxophone in my mouth, and the first note of my junior recital sounds like this. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the whole bloody recital. Every time I take a breath, I have to make sure that everything is not going to happen. That's why I always put bobby pins here. Oh, I know. That's what it, somebody came up to me at the half and said, here, use these. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. My brass quintet in Lethbridge, um, we have a... We, we have a Pants check before we go on stage. We use, we use, we're back backstage and we all look at the pants check, and it's check your flies, check your butt, uh, because there was one show and I don't even remember what we were doing, um, 
but we were standing and sitting a whole bunch for this show, mm. and somebody tore the ass out of their pants. <laughs> what do you <laughs> mean? Like just sitting? Just up and then down again. <laughs> It was just split right down the middle. <laughs> like, like, what do you do? Right? Because I mean, you know, tuxedo pants. You, you, I don't know how. I mean, I've had the same tuxedo for better part of probably fifteen years. Like, you wear them off and up. It's all like they're gonna wear out. Well, they're until expensive. They, uh, until they rip in the butt. Until they rip in the butt. Right. That's exactly it. So it was. Um, Could you see their underwear? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Were you at the office again asking for tape? <laughs> I was not. <laughs> we, we, uh, this guy yeah, again. They went backstage, and I think they just changed into their street pants at that point. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, yeah, no, fly check, pants check. When I was a doctoral student at Northwestern, one of the composers was very interested in pushing the envelope. So he had this piece called Exit. And here are the requirements for exit. The, com- the performer, it's a very, very hard piece. The performer has electrodes implanted, or not implanted, placed on their body <laughs> that measures um, their physiology, what's happening, and okay. their heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to do it as fast as possible and intensely as possible. And then, of course, things start, and then the track that you play with speeds up according to your heart rate, which again, feedback loops it. Okay, so this is already fairly stressful. Charles, that's like a nightmare. But you're supposed to play it naked. Oh my gosh. And that was the request. Will you play naked? (laughs) And I said, no, I will not, sir. (laughs) Because I assume coming out on stage would already give you quite an elevated uh, physiological response, so to speak. Naked? Naked. Like in front of the audience? In front of the audience. Wow. Hard pass. Yeah. Hard pass. Oh my yeah. God, Charles. I, I thought it would be d- too demeaning. I learned the piece, mm. well, but, but they, I never performed it I mean, would, it that, would, people have, would, would the higher-ups been okay with that? Like, well, you know, it's a university, right? So probably. they probably would have been fine. I mean, I went and saw a dance production when I was an undergraduate where the, the women were topless. Yeah, sure, that happens all I the mean, time. I mean, I couldn't Depends do it. Depends if it's in the service of art. This would have been in the right. service of I art. I guess, I guess. It's not titillating. I mean, it would have been... But that's, very I mean, gripping. that's like, too, that would say, that's like trauma. You'd need therapy. After well, that. you'd need a special type of person. Yeah. Do, you'd need a theater person who would be comfortable with that. Yeah. Who could but also that was play the, the sound? That was, yeah. yeah, that was the most extraordinary so, request I've ever had. <laughs> Naked, with playing electrodes. a difficult piece attached to electrodes. And the track gets faster and faster as your physiology, <laughs> you get more and more tired out. I don't and think you can beat that. that that's, that's, I know, it's really that's, brilliant, that's, isn't it? That's really For huge. killing the performer, it is really <laughs> that's brilliant. That's the one. Goodness. Uh, we were doing a biometric research mm. on, on trombone players and how we hold our instruments and all that sort of stuff. But it was actually turned out to be very interesting, but to do some of that research, they needed to do three-dimensional modeling of the players. And we're like, okay, so how are we going to do that? They're going to get all this this rig up in the university, and we've got cameras, and we're going to do motion capture. But if we're going to do motion capture, we got to put those little fun ping-pong balls mm-hmm. on you, which means we got to get you into those wetsuits. Mm-hmm. And so here we are in these skin-tight, wow. black and blue, with the, with the skull caps and everything, ping-pongs all over your body. And they're just saying, okay, now play something faster, play something slower, and they're doing this motion capture. And all you can think of is like, gosh, this is tight. <laughs> it's like, can I, can I pick this out of my butt here? Like, it's, every it's, it's ripple. creeping up, right? Like every little, every little curve that you don't want to show off. Uh, and yeah, so I, I can't beat the naked saxophone performance, but... Uh, it was as close to naked as, as, close as you were as willing yeah, to go. And, and we were yeah. doing Plus, it for, you had ping-pong balls. And we had ping-pong balls. So that's true. Like, 
Yeah, which is also great because when you come out of the seeing the after product, all it is is just like a wireframe. So here we are feeling uncomfortable, oh, but it's just like a wireframe yeah, of your yeah. bone structure. Like, well, why was I in the wetsuit then if this is, yeah. That brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks so much to Nick and Charles for being willing to share your awesome stories with me. Uh, it's so fun t- to hear these really unique and crazy things that otherwise I probably never would have learned about you guys. Thanks also to everyone who's listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.